You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome to Black Mirror Reflections, a series of conversations aimed at carefully thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the Black Mirror series. I'm your host, Dr. J, and each episode I'll be joined by an invited guest to discuss one installment of Black Mirror. My guest today is Amon Arred, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toledo, my very dear friend of almost 20 years, and one of the most insightful people I know. I've always appreciated Amon's unconventional thinking and the ease with which he is able to think about art and politics together. So I'm especially pleased to have him here for a conversation today about Black Mirror's inaugural episode, The National Anthem, first aired in 2011. So first, welcome, Ammon. Hey, Lee. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you a sort of uh, tough question first, which is, do you mind summarizing the National Anthem for us right here at the beginning? Uh, Sure, I'll give it a try and feel free to interrupt me at any point if I'm getting details. (laughs) The thing about it is, is it's it's a very formally tight episode. So Everything that happens, happens very quickly. We're woken up in the middle of the night. Uh, our prime minister, uh, Michael Callow, uh, who you might have recognized from the another show that Lee and I love called Years and Years. Um, yes, but uh, Michael Callow uh, is woken up. He's got some sort of video. It seems to be that, a, that the, a, a popular princess has been kidnapped. And before he can even find out what the demands are, they start to insist. They say, all right, we're stopping the tape. We need you to know that this is real. And he's like, well, what do you mean that this is real? And ultimately what emerges is that the demand is, is, is not political, seemingly at all in nature. The demand is that if that the next day the prime minister go on air and have, as the networks will struggle to call it as they're covering it, intimate relations of an illegal and disgusting na- nature with a pig. And of course, the prime, we watch as uh, the apparatus of government tries to rescue the princess and keep this from happening. Uh, and of course, fails to do so. That's the episode. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I can elaborate more, but <laughs> no, but, that uh, was actually yeah. go ahead. As 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 short summaries go, that was direct and to the point. So one of the things that I should note here right at the start is that this podcast epi- episode is somewhat obviously going to include a discussion of acts and ideas that many people find disturbing offensive or probably both. Um, I should also say that it will also include spoilers, as will all of these Black Mirror Reflection podcast episodes. So if you haven't seen the National Anthem yet, you definitely want to tune out now and come back to this discussion later. So now that we've got the basic plot uh, out of the way, I just thought before we kind of jump into talking about this episode that we might just talk for a second about how this episode introduced the series. So I am one of those people who, you know, as a huge fan of Black Mirror, over the years, when I run into people who haven't seen Black Mirror, I tell them, don't watch the first episode first. Because in my experience, uh, too many people, you know, watched the first episode and said, what is this disgusting, sicko, sci-fi, dystopic film? I don't want to have anything else to do with it. And, you know, and, you know, just sort of gave up on the entire uh, enterprise right there. But even with that warning, I think it's the best episode. So what do you think about well, this as a way I, to introduce Black Mirror? I, well, first of all, I'm laughing because, in fact, I was introduced with Black Mirror by, to Black Mirror by you. When you came You're to, welcome. You, <laughs> when you came to give me a talk in, in Toledo uh, uh, and... Uh, but this is the episode we watched, so I don't know what that says about, about <laughs> your thoughts I mean, about me. I'll just, that, like, I'll, just, <laughs> I'll just say that I take you as an exception to all of my normal social behavior rules. But. but yeah, I mean, it, it, it completely hooked me. I mean, I think that I think that Black Mirror at its best, it often sort of gets put off, put off, and it often does very well, sort of dystopian sci-fi, which is which is what it is. But I think what it's what it's doing at bottom is exploring possibilities that are already imminent in our relationship to one another in the world. This episode is suffused with modern technology, but doesn't really depend upon any sort of like, I mean, I don't want to use the word gimmick, but it doesn't depend upon any sort of like concept technology stuff. 
a set of possibilities that given the world that we inhabit, given what politics and art and media are, is entirely possible. And it's exploring that in a horrifyingly unflinching way. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I actually really love about this particular episode is that it does not include any futuristic technology at all. I mean, I think maybe the only other episode that is like that is the um, Shut Up and Dance episode from season three, I think. That's, uh, yeah, that one does true. That doesn't include, you know, that, you know, this is something that definitely could happen right now, which reminds me of this, you know, I quote this often, this really great quote from Charlie Brooker, where he says, you know, what, you know, he, he's argued in many interviews that he did not, does not intend for Black Mirror to be either utopic or dystopic. And he says, it's just a series about the way that we're living now and how we could be living in 10 minutes if we're clumsy, right? And so <laughs> I so I actually think that, you know, starting the series off with this kind of a episode that doesn't involve some of the imaginary futuristic technologies that we see in later seasons or even later in the first season is really interesting. But yeah, it is, you know, I, I do think for you know, the faint hearted that it's not the one to start with. No, that's, that's fair. I do think, and I, and I hope we have a time to talk about this. I do think though, that another thing that it does really well that sets the tone for Black Mirror is it maybe more explicitly than any of the other early ones and maybe more explicit than any of them, except maybe White Bear holds, like is very conscious about holding up a mirror to the audience. There are crucial moments, you know, because I think, you know, since yeah. now everyone's gone home and watched it or stopped the recording and watched it, I think, you know, ultimately much less interesting morally than whether or not the prime minister has an intimate act with the pig is the decision of the entire world to watch it. Their collective realization of their own moral implication, which is our moral implication as we watch it too. And I think that that to me is a feature of all of the best Black Mirror episodes is that mirroring function. And I think in this one, it's very sort of, it's like Aristotle says about tragedy, when the reversal and recognition happen at the same time, that's the best tragedy. And this might be the best Black Mirror episode because the thing, the the climax of the whole episode is our disgust at watching the episode. Yeah. First of all, the 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 pace of the episode is just pitch perfect. It's just a kind of draws you into the the setup, and there's a very tight internal logic to the episode. So you very quickly forget how ridiculous this scenario is. And you kind of watch this unfold, this world in which the only question is, is he going to have sex with a pig? And of course, as the viewer of the Black Mirror episode, that's also what I'm, you know, what, why you keep watching, you know, you're like, am I really going to watch, you know, someone have sex with a pig on television? And yeah, it's so disturbing. I mean, that, of course, you know, in the episode, it turns out that this whole episode was uh, was just a artist's invention. And so it does, you know, make you wonder whether or not uh, Charlie Brooker sort of put himself in the role of this kind of artist terrorizing us with our own kind of morbid fascination with watching other people humiliated. You know, the, the, so the, I, think it's, I think it might be the final line and it's in a little epilogue, right? It was when it's revealed that, okay, this was an artist who did this. It ends by saying, I think these are the last words. If not, I'm going to say, pretend that they are. Some critics have started to call this the first true artwork of the 21st century. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you know, one question is, of course, is, 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 is uh, Brooker making that? Is it Brooker or Booker? I realize I should probably know this, but I don't. It's Brooker. There you go. So like, a, Brooker, like a babbling brook. There you go. <laughs> is Brooker making this claim about himself? Which is, which is an audacious claim, although I, I do think it is an artwork of the 21st century. And even though it's not, you know, so it doesn't have these sort of technological constraints, it, it's very much of the 21st century. I mean, yeah, the, it, it does depend upon, you know, it depends upon the ubiquity of YouTube. It depends upon the fact that you can Twitter for snap polls. Um, uh, hold on, pause that. We're having an Amber Alert in Tennessee. <laughs> Child has been abducted. That's for the princess. The princess has been abducted. <laughs> Hold on, let me sure. let me uh, mute my phone, and then you can just re say what you just. Yeah, so I do think. I mean, I think that pretty much the last line in the episode, when you're in an epilogue and you're finding out that it was an artist that did this, somebody's saying many critics are starting, to, or some critics are starting to insist that this is the first true artwork of the 21st century, and it's hard not to read Brooker as making that assertion about himself, which I think 
you know, I don't know that it's the first or the greatest, but it's it's certainly, I think, a distinctively 21st century work of art, which even without the sort of the technological constraints, it does depend upon uh, some of the features that we take for granted about social media and the way that social media, for example, with YouTube and Twitter allows uh, content to be distributed without going through gatekeepers, the way in which there's, it's possible to have snap polls. So the prime minister at any moment knows exactly whether or not the public thinks that he should have sex with the pig. And, and that's forcing his hand. So those fe- those sort of features of it make it sort of distinctively 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of, you know, hyperbolized antagonism between old media and new media in this episode is really interesting. We are right now, you and I, just coming off the end of presidential election season in 2020 and have been like, you know, quite literally oversaturated with just this kind of constant polling information for the last, well, I would say six months, but it's really been the last, you know, six years. But yeah, I mean, this, you know, I do think that this is a huge part of the actual episode is the kind of new media, old media, I I don't know, fight, um, fight for supremacy. uh, I mean, this is definitely one of the things that gets the ball rolling, right? Because one of the great, you know, sort of uncomfortably comedic moments is in, you know, the very first opening scene when the prime minister is brought to the room where he's shown this video of the captured princess reading the demands of her captor. And she said, you know, including the demand that the prime minister appear on television and have sex with a pig. And he, you know, his first response is, you know, this doesn't leave this room. And, you know, and, and I mean, and so, you know, for all of us, right, we're like, lols, right? It's on the <laughs> internet. It's, you know, that you can't unring that bell, right? Um, yeah, he's like, take it down, which is the most yeah. like, which is like the most like, I don't get the internet thing to say. And yet our politicians still say all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the time. And, it, you know, but I, it is important, I think, to remember that this came out in 2011, right? And, right. Um, you know, I mean, YouTube is not, was not that old in 2011. And so, you know, when, when the response of one of the prime minister's assistants, you know, he's, he's like, look, it's already out of this room. It's on YouTube. And, you know, and he says, well, you know, force them to take it down. And he's like, it was on YouTube for nine minutes, you know, which means that it's already been downloaded and copied and reproduced. You know, it's a virus at that point. They, they, kick off the episode with this idea that, you know, new media is a new world, right? And it mm-hmm. and it's a world that shapes everything, you know, from the kind of personal ways that we understand ourselves and our obligations to the much broader, like how states and governmental apparatus operate. It's funny, but on the other hand, though, so you've got that tension with this, like, absolutely new media, this, you know, the, the prime minister being pushed by changes in his ability to control information and also polling that would have been impossible two years earlier even. At the same time, it's crucial that the person who's kidnapped is a popular princess. Yeah. And that the person who has to have sex with the pig is the prime minister. It's crucial that the people of England seem, or the, seem to regard this as an assault upon themselves. It's not just that any, you know, the prime minister presumably wouldn't do this for any random person, even if arguably, you know, if we trolley problemed it, maybe that would be the right thing to do. I don't know. But it's the it's it's this it's the body of the sovereign. Right. has to be protected. And so you've got this incredibly old idea uh, about what a state is and about the relationship between the prime minister and the queen, who's explicitly referenced, who who calls up and basically tells the prime minister, you're going to have to fuck a pig this absolute new media that supposedly controls the narrative. I think it's the tension between those two things that really makes the episode work. So since you brought it up, let's just talk about that because I know you've mentioned to me before that you think the question of this episode is not, should he have fucked the pig or not? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I often hear people talking about this and sort of framing it in kind of trolley problem ways. So First of all, tell me why you think that's not the question and what do you think? The okay, so I think that that's the question that the episode, at, let's say on the surface, asks, right? And obviously, right, as we're seeing the people of England, you know, where we're sort of going around to random places and we're seeing the people, the citizens of Great Britain asking this question. We're being told what Twitter thinks. Oh, only 24% think you should. Now 80% do, right? When he tries to get out on this technicality or they try to trick the guy, now suddenly 80% do. Um, and of course, you know, at home, and I think when we were watching, you're like, well, should he do it or not, right? 
And I, of course you can answer the question. I think there is an answer to the question, should he or should he not have sex with the pig? But I think- Wait, wait, the, wait, wait, wait. What is the answer to that question? I mean, obviously he should. Because- really? yeah, Obviously? It's, you say that with such confidence and I'm- <laughs> I mean, as a concept, I mean, if you frame a trolley problem, it's just like it's obvious to turn to switch, flip the switch. Once you buy into the assumptions of the game, you're being put into a formal system. The artist in this case has very carefully outlined the requirements. Once you accept those requirements, I, I almost think the point isn't to try to force you to decide one way or the other, because, you know, again, it's like, yes, you know, I mean, essentially, and it's weird that we, you know, we don't, we talk about the prime minister as an actor here, but it's very fair to see him as essentially being, being sexually assaulted, right? I mean, he's a victim of a form of rape, right? And yet that's not how the episode gets talked about a lot of times. But he is an actor, right? Or even though he's really being controlled by his staff. But, but you know, he's, he's a moral actor. And I don't think that as a moral actor, if if that's the if those are the stakes, if somebody's life is at stake, um, even if it is a princess, I know we're supposed to say especially with it is a princess, but I'll say even if it is a princess. Um, <laughs> that, was, that, was an excellent, uh, that was an excellent caveat from the colonies. <laughs> then, then it, it, it shouldn't be a question um, once you've bought into the formal demands of the system. But the no, bigger let me, question- let me, just, let me just jump in here really quick because I'm, I'm literally shocked that you're like, obviously he should have sex with the pig. But do you mean obviously in his role as a moral agent or obviously in his role as, you know, an office of the state? In his role as a moral agent, I think. So anyone- has this obvious ob- obligation. I mean, it's not, it doesn't matter yeah. that he's prime minister. I, I think that makes him probably, probably that makes it super derogatory, right? I think that, I think there's a case, like, let me put, I, I, I think that if you're asking the question, is it moral? And I mean, that's a good, that's a, that's a very, that's a good question. I, I, the word, I think obligation becomes a tough thing. Can you can you demand that somebody submit to a form of coerce sexually in order to save somebody else's life? No, right. right? I, I don't think that that's an obligation, and I think it would be pretty weird to say that it is. But I think you can also regard it as a moral act to do so, like super derogatory. Yeah, beyond beyond the call of duty. Yes, yeah, I think I think that's right, yeah. and I think yeah. and I, I think that what might be the case is because he's prime minister, it becomes derogatory. Is that the right word there? Yeah, it is derogatory. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it becomes it becomes it becomes sort of not just it becomes positive uh, obligation. Yeah, I mean, I know you don't like the language of obligation, but I do think that it matters in this scenario because we're talking about someone who's acting in his role as an officer of the state. His like quite simple obligations are to ensure the safety of the citizenry, and I suppose that also includes the royalty. Although royalty is definitely not citizenry, right? So no, I don't, and, 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 and I think that's, I think that from the perspective of the episode, that's crucial. Yeah, right? because yeah. they even say to her that the Alex, who I think is like his chief of staff or something, even says the Queen and MI five have made it clear that if you don't do this, they cannot vouch for your safety. So that his so he is yeah he is co- coerced you know he is under threat right to mm-hmm. perform this action. But but just to go back to the question about obligations. I do think that, you know, we, you know, it doesn't matter that he's the prime minister, because I do think that we presume that there are obligations that would be super erogatory for normal citizens that are, you know, belong to certain offices. Yeah, but I, but I do think crucially, again, from a consequential perspective, which is what we're sort of being asked to think about, it would be moral for anyone to do this, right? It might not be an obligation but it would be moral for anyone to do it in this scenario. Mm. And you could maybe even say in some weird way, that would be the quote unquote right answer. Again, mm. I think that the bigger point is that the right, the idea of a right answer here has already missed the point. It's interesting. Wait, let me put, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Let me put this seat. Let me put this seat. I'm still quite bothered by your confidence in, in, in <laughs> that this would be the right thing to do, because let me, let me ask you whether or not you think maybe there's some symmetry between this act and the kinds of consequentialist arguments that people might make against, for example, interrogation torture. So the idea here is that not just simply like, are you going to save someone's life, but what sort of a world are you creating, right? Where, when this becomes an acceptable exchange. And so, you know, I think that, you know, like even in just kind of simple utilitarian logic, we really, oh, there's a baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even in simple utilitarian logic, we have to think, 
you know, that it's not just his embarrassment versus her life, right? I mean, there's a whole nation, right, that is traumatized by this, you know, that there, you know, we don't know what the kind of long-term consequences of unleashing this kind of possibility on a culture is. So I'm not sure that, you know, and, and, you know, in many of the same ways that people say, okay, obviously if I torture this, whatever, you know, the ticking time bomb, if I torture this bomber to save a thousand lives, that's, you know, clearly justified. Well, it's not clearly justified, obviously, because, you know, you're, you're, you know, creating a world in which, you know, you have to accept that this is a, like the torture can be, yeah. you know, situated such that it's morally acceptable. So I do, I actually completely agree with you, right? And that's why, I, I mean, I was maybe being a little too provocative, but but when I yeah. said, like, as long as you buy into the game, when utilitarians start to rely on very long-term trends and consequences in order to spare ah! their moral intuitions, I become super suspicious of it, right? So lying is the classic example. Oh, well, we can think of lots of examples where lying is would lead to better consequences, but we have the sort of, longer term fear about a world in which truth is not well. And I, I tend to think that like that sort of utilitarians like uh, get out of jail free card. So I think, I, so anyway, so I'm, I'm less persuaded on the utilitarian account, but I do completely agree that we ought not accept the way in which the artist has framed the game. Just like we ought not accept the idea. Like I think that the problem with the ticking time dot bomb is that once we accept that that's a, once we accept that possibility, that possibility starts to structure how we look at and regard lots of situations, including situations, of course, which is most of them, where we can't be so confident about the consequence. And I think something similar is happening here, right? The artist has, this terroristic artist, right, has created an artificial system in which time is incredibly constrained so that you can't ask questions about the overall consequences, right? Or you can't ask questions about sort of, about the way in which it's framed, let's say. All I'm trying to say is once you buy into the artist's framing, I do think it's, kind of straightforwardly the right decision. But I think that buying into the artist framing is the bigger problem. Brooker, again, is intentionally doing that. He's 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 giving us such a shocking, right? And, and something that's explicitly morally disgusting to us that relies on sort of our, our reaction of disgust in order to sort of shock our sensibilities so that we don't think about the ways in which this encounter is being framed by assumptions about the world, assumptions about ourselves, that that we might not want to take on. And I think that comes to a head, not when the prime minister has sex with the pig, but when the entire world waits to see whether he does, and then suddenly realizes, oh, now we're watching a, a guy be forced to have sex with a pig on camera live. And, but then they don't turn it off. You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections podcast with your host, Dr. J, and today's special guest, Ammon Allred. At the conclusion of this episode, please check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com for a list of really helpful links and further reading about today's topic. Now back to the episode. Right. So yeah. I'm glad that you brought up that the artist demanded this particular act in exchange for the princess too, because I do think it connects this episode with some other Black Mirror episodes. In general, people have the strongest moral reactions to harming a child, bestiality, you know, sex with animal, non-human animals, or sex with robots, right? And we see, you know, the bestiality in this one. We see the harm, the harming of a child in White Bear, and we see the sex with robots or androids in Be Right Back. And obviously, we're going to have later episodes where we talk about White Bear and Be Right Back. But, you know, one of the things that is similar between National Anthem and White Bear is that, you know, we're given this kind of moral offense that really strikes us in our core as a way of sort of motivating us to really push the limits of what we will accept what we will find acceptable, or I guess in your case, um, obligatory. (laughs) Morally (laughs) correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so I do think it's really interesting that, I mean, Charlie Brooker does not blink, you know, when, you know, setting up the kind of parameters of the internal logic of the episode and this one, you know, really the fact that it's having sex with a pig is a big thing. (laughs) 
Yeah, maybe I feel I feel really bad for how how strongly I put that. So therefore, I'm going to defend it even more, right? So yeah, go all in, push all in. <laughs> but 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 I also want to I, I do again. I want to sort of highlight my reason for defending it up front, right? Is as I do think that Daniel Dennett uses this term to describe John Searle's Chinese room. I, I do want to defend my earlier statement probably because I feel bad about it. Um, I but I want to again highlight that. I think the reason why I'd sort of said it so forcefully was because I wanted to highlight the ways in which we're sort of being set up into a trap. Daniel Dennett, when he's talking about John Searle's Chinese room, so it's a very different context, but he talks about this idea of an intuition pump, which I actually think is helpful here. And that's a th- that's something that looks like a thought experiment, looks like a neutral thought experiment, but essentially uses our own prejudices and our own sort of intellectual or emotional shorthand against us to sort of force us to regard something as plausible that isn't, right? So again, I think the ticking time bomb terrace is a great example of this because it's actually not a very plausible scenario. And the fact mm-hmm. that it's not plausible is relevant in evaluating it given that it's going to be used to justify torturing in cases where there's not really a time bomb. Similarly here, I think that Brooker, the, so the reason why I was highlighting this moral discuss is because he's trying to, using something very big in order to force us in order to sort of numb some of our other critical capacities. Uh, and, and that's sort of what I'm thinking about this intuition. Part. Yeah, I mean, I do want to say one thing is that I don't think that things like the Charlie problem and the ticking time bomb scenario are, like, I don't think it matters that they're unlikely or, you know, I mean, I think that that's not the point of those thought experiments. The point of those thought experiments is really to give you a kind of, you know, to use the phenomenological term, sort of like bracketed view of moral reasoning. That's the claim, right? But I think, yeah. I, I understand that it's that it's relevant, that it's not very likely. And I think in the trolley problem, it's maybe fair. But I think I think that the issue is, is that when we bracket things, and especially again, when you're bracketing things where these giant, when you're bracketing, when you're trying to sort of perform the bracketing, and there are some, let's say, very emotionally or cognitively charged parts of the scenario, mm-hmm. I think that we fail to bracket very well. So my issue with the ticking time bomb, which I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, though, is that that's what yeah. happens there. We make bad intellectual moves because really we have not bracketed our horror at this idea of a nuclear bomb going on a big city. Similarly here, I think we're not doing a very good job of bracketing our, our moral intuitions because the thing that's on the line is sex with a pig. No, that's actually really interesting because I remember reading somewhere that Brooker claimed that one of the kind of inspirations for this episode was an edition of a comic that was called The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. Like, I don't I don't read uh, comics, so I don't know this, but I do know that in this comic, apparently there was like a police chief that was required to have sex with a pig. But the comic itself may have picked up that idea from a, you know, basically standard piece of political wisdom that Hunter S. Thompson attributed to Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> oh, right. In which a politician smears a rival by falsely calling him a pig fucker in order to, quote, make the son of a bitch deny it. I do think that that is a, a kind of accurate description of what we're describing here, which is setting up the rules of a game that are, you know, in some ways so absurd and offensive and, you know, in which, you know, there's no right decisions just so you can make a wrong decision publicly. Well, um, it's, it's funny. I mean, it, I mean, there is a lot of comedy in this episode, weirdly, too, right? It's like, yes, it's like, really a lot, yes. Where they're walking to him, going to have sex with his pig, and they're like, take as long as you need. Don't go too fast, because then people might think you're enjoying it. And- right, and the, guy, and the guy that they hired to film it, apparently they know, uh, because he did a like a space Western that was called the sea of tranquility. Like they seem to be suggesting that the moon landing was faked, that this guy did it. Oh, I didn't catch did that. <laughs> no, I didn't. Catch yeah. that. <laughs> I see. Anyway. You know, so, so right. They're, they're playing with this idea, right? It's like, Oh, he has to really worry about his perception. One of the things that I thought was really darkly hilarious this time that I didn't catch the first time I watched it. So he's, he's, he's had sex with a pig. It's a year later. And what's happened to his career. Oh, his career is actually going really well. But I, I didn't catch his career is going really well because his approval ratings are three point high, three points higher. Yeah. Right? So having sex with a pig to save the princess bought him three points of approval rating, which in the world of politics apparently makes it a good idea. Right. Yeah. So unlike yeah. Lyndon Johnson, where he's smearing his opponents with this, in this case, it actually helps him. 
And I think that's, I mean, again, sort of to defend my initial hot take, which I'm going to keep defending more and more. When I was watching this episode, I was reminded of um, Kierkegaard's fear and trembling in a weird way, in the fall, in the following way. So this is famously about this question, should Abraham sacrifice his son Isaac, right? Given that God has told him to do that. And that's a different question, but it's again, sort of one of these shocking moral dilemmas. But along the way, Kierkegaard says, look, if you were part of a nation, you were the leader of a nation, and it was clear that for the good of the nation, you had to commit a shocking horrible act. Not only should you do it, you shouldn't even feel bad about it. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what we see here. What, what his advisors are saying to him is, everybody understands why you have to do this. Nobody's going to think, which is, of course, the most important thing, not that he has to like submit to this act that he doesn't want to do, and that's humiliating and disgusting to him. So everybody's fine with him doing it, except for his wife, which is crucial, too. Yeah, I want to just go back to your Kierkegaard point for a second, if that's okay. Because, I mean, one of the things that I've always really loved about Fear and Trembling is that Kierkegaard takes really seriously the horror of this story and even makes fun in parts of people who, you know, go to church and they like hear the story of Abraham and Isaac as, you know, the model of faith. And, you know, fall asleep during the sermon instead of being as we all should be, you know, like what, you know, a man was about to kill his son and he didn't even tell his wife. And, you know, and and, you know, what was that? What was how did that conversation go and that long walk up the mountain? You know, I mean, they didn't ask all of the kind of normal questions that you would ask of a horrifying story like this. And it requires a frame, in this case, the frame of the infinite, of God, right, of the transcendent, mm-hmm. in order to, for that story to make sense, the, the frame of faith. And one of the things that I think Black Mirror as a series tries to set up for us is this, I, this idea that you know, when you frame something in terms of the rapidly changing possibilities of technology, that you can see a kind of uncanny speed with which the unthinkable enters the realm of the acceptable. And that seems to me what happens in Fear and Trembling is that the unthinkable, a father would claim that he heard a voice right, that told him to kill his son, and that then for two millennia, People would take this as a model of faithful behavior. Like that's unthinkable, right? It becomes acceptable given a certain frame. And I think this is what Bite Mirror does is it shows us how technologies are framing our societies in such a way to make things that were previously unthinkable acceptable. Yeah. And we watch it happen in about three hours, right? In this episode, it goes from 20% of the population saying, oh yeah, you should do this, right? And everybody will think, no, we get it. He can't do it, whatever. To 80% saying that he should, and being told that if he doesn't, he, he can't guarantee his safety. And of course, all of us then going along, being part of this audience watching it, like we watch ourselves be okay with that. But again, if it ends with him crying in the bathroom, and the real, and also the revelation that like, actually the artist had released her before it started, the big mm-hmm. punch in the gut. If it ends there, we end with the horror, but the coda, the year later coda, shows that it's become completely normalized. Yes, yeah. Um, right. That's it. And it's the coda that I think really demonstrates this way in which the unthinkable has not only entered the realm of the acceptable, but actually become, you know, and, and with that, I kind of want to make a pivot if it's okay. Sure. I want to talk, I want to talk about the way that technology has changed in the last uh, nine years or since 2011, when this premiered, because one of the things, as you know, I'm sort of obsessed with this, that has really developed at lightning speed in the last four or five years it has been facial recognition technology. And as it's interesting because one of the initial strategies of the prime minister's staff is to try, right, to digitally replace, to, you know, get an actor. They end up bringing in a porn actor and having him put on a kind of green screen mask. And the idea was that they could digitally replace, you know, uh, his face uh, the prime, you know, the prime minister, but you know what I mean? They yeah. can put the prime minister's face on the porn actor's face yeah. and basically sort of fool the hostage taker into believing that they had satisfied his demands. And that was, of course, you know, not possible at the time to do in a convincing manner. And it is a hundred percent possible today to do in a convincing manner. Um, even in you real know, time. I don't I don't think that they could do it in real time, but obviously it wouldn't be difficult to sort of pre-record it and sure. 
you know, Everybody. cast it, cast it as if it were yeah. live. Deepfake is an app. It's an app now. Anybody can have it. Anybody can do it. It's extremely easy and it's extremely good, you know, high quality. So, you know, I wonder what you think about the fact that, again, sort of framing it in this way of like what was unthinkable is now acceptable. You know, we're living in a world where not only is, you know, deepfake technology thinkable, it's largely acceptable. I mean, I think that people are worried about it, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think that, I mean, the funny thing, right, is like in that story, it is taken for granted. Everybody accepts. And again, like, you know, it sounds like the artist is given technical constraints and he understands the technology at the time pretty well so that he can be confident that if they're doing this. Now, maybe maybe that's now an unsolvable problem. You know the technology better than I do. But crucially, the audience, yeah, they all think that they, that what they are seeing counts as an eyewitness. And I think one thing that would happen now is, and we see this, I mean, with QAnon in a different way, there would be no agreement as to whether or not he actually fought the pig. That you're actually getting at what is the heart of my question. If this happened today, you know, it was going to air on television at four o'clock today, then everybody would watch. I believe everybody would watch, but I doubt anyone would believe that what they're seeing on the screen is actually really happening. Yeah. I think yeah. everyone would assume that it had been digitally manipulated. So I hope that I would not watch, by the way, because the other, the flip side of my earlier answer was, the prime minister should have sex with the pig, but we should all turn off our TVs, right? And of course, Brooker and the artist know that that's the thing we won't do. In other words, we should refuse to normalize it. We should refuse to be part of that moral community. But of course we will. But that's, a, but but that's, a, sort, of, that's a sort of really weird answer, Eamon, because the point of the demand, and so mm -hmm. presumably part of the satisfaction of the demand, is not just that he has sex with a pig. But that he has sex with a pig in front of everyone. Well, but he doesn't demand that. He just knows it'll happen, right? Yeah. So if we were better people, we just wouldn't out of respect. And again, not even necessarily out of more disgust, but respect for the prime minister. Uh, and even David Cameron, you know, whoever, the, Boris Johnson deserves some respect, perhaps, right? It's none of our business. And it's it's wrong of us to watch that. But of course, you know, the, the artist knows full well he doesn't have to demand that of us because he knows we're going to do it. And I think yeah. you're right. So we would all watch it. We'd also all think it was fake. But I think the same thing is true with deep fakes. That's true here. The only way to win in a world of deep fake is to refuse to play the game. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Right? Okay, so here's but, what I, here's what I want to like strongly disagree because I think that that was a possibility before deep fakes. Like before deep fakes, we could have said everyone should just not watch, right? Well, they do say that. Yeah, no, of they course, do nobody say doesn't. That. Yeah. But right. But I'm saying like that option of refusing to be complicit in this, you know, spectacle. That, that was a possibility before deep. Yes. I think now it's not a possibility. It's not, it's not that refusal is not even a possibility because there's no way to be confident that what you're seeing is it, it, whether or not when you watch something, if you're participating in a spectacle you know, a spectacular version of the real or whether or not it's, you know, just a simulacrum or just a, you know, fiction or however, you know, it's just a piece of art. And so, you know, so I, I actually think that takes away from us the possibility of the kind of, you know, moral refusal that you're identifying as a virtue. But why I could still refuse, I could, I could still refuse to participate, like whether or not it's a deep fake it's being aired at four o'clock, I can still refuse not to watch it. Then why didn't you refuse to watch this episode the minute you saw what it what was? I should have, right? Oh my so, God, Ammon. <laughs> so to, no, to a certain degree, to a certain degree, the simulacrum matters here, right? And this this is- Attention this is listeners, be I'm about to fire my first, <laughs> my first invited guest is about to be muted. Okay, go ahead and try to, de try to defend that claim. Go no, ahead. I mean, so, okay. So first of all, the fact that it is explicitly a simulacrum, right? So we're not dealing with a deep fake here. Also, the actor didn't really have sex with a pig, right? I mean, we are dealing with a work of art about having sex with a pig, not somebody actually having That still is a relevant distinction. Now, I know you could come back to me and say, well, that's now, now that now with deep fakes, fakes is a possibility, that's true of everything, right? Right, exactly. But I do think that there, there's still a contextual difference, right? So the deep fake is presenting itself as a real thing. I have proof that this politician uh, had sex with a pig and here it is. And it's not presenting itself as a satirical take on things. It's presenting itself as something that really happened of which there is an eyewit of, of which there is eyewitness footage, which may or may not be real. 
And right, but, but that's what I can that- participate to. That's what I, I can still refuse to participate to be involved in that. And watching this episode didn't commit me to that, but it did commit me to think about it and to realize yeah, that I- had that happened, I should have not watched it. Yeah, I'm about to probably overstate my position here in a way that I'm not fully committed to, but just for the sake of conversation. I mean, I do think, though, that now that we know the ubiquity and the quality of deepfakes, I'm not sure that we, you know, this is sort of my point before, I'm not sure that we entirely have the moral standing to, you know, make those judgments about, like, am I watching cinema or am I watching documentary? Right. Although documentary is obviously so cinema, but you know what I mean. Now, you know, again, if this were to happen today, it doesn't matter that it's like, it seems to me that if someone announced that today Donald Trump was going to have sex with a pig, national television, if someone announced that today, I think that I would watch and I would assume that what I'm seeing is not real. I would accept that it's presenting itself as real. I would assume that it's not in many of the same ways that when I go to the cinema and I watch a love story, I accept it as presenting something to me that is real that I know is not. Now, of course, the difference is that in a film, the creators have told me that it's fiction. But, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sort of thinking back to I was one of the people who in whatever year it was, 1999, 2000, when the Blair Witch Project came out. I was one of the people who saw it when it first came to the theaters and, you know, there was still some like legitimate disagreement about whether or not this was a documentary film or not. It seems like when that kind of distinction, like this is fiction, this is reality, when that distinction is blurred and when, you know, as a moral agent, I can't have confidence, Mm -hmm. you know, either that I can determine determine the difference with my own senses or with my critical apparatuses. And I can't necessarily trust the creators to honestly tell me whether or not what I'm watching is, you know, a creation or not. I'm upset because you're going to force me to commit myself to a certain kind of realism here. And that, that bothers me. Although I think I can defend it. I know it bothers you, but I think, I think that's why it's interesting. Yeah. But I think that's what you have to say. I do think that, I think that there, I still think that there's a difference. I think that, because I think what's at stake, I mean, the reason why the prime minister has to do it real or not is because there really is a body at stake. And, and ultimately he's not allowed to use a substitute body. He has to use his own body. Body of the princess is really at stake. And I'm, I'm still committed, I think in a way that in a different way than I think you are to this idea that like that distinction matters. So while I agree that there's no structural way to tell a reality, to tell a real from a fake, I think that in the context of the story, and I think still, if this were happening today, our belief warranted or not completely securely provable or not, that there is a real body, that the, that the princess is a real life who's abducted, or that the prime minister with his actual body is going to actually have sex with an actual pig. It, it's our belief in that reference to something outside of the cinematic act that gives it its more. And it might I mean, be that, that deep fakes make that completely impossible, not just sort of like structurally undecidable, but pragmatically undecidable. I don't know. Right. But but I think that that's where the, the weight weighs for me. Well, I think there are t- sort of two different questions here. There's one, the sort of moral weight of, you know, that's placed on the shoulders of the viewers. Am, am I watching an, an incident of coerced sexual assault? There's that moral weight. But then there's the other moral weight that's placed on the prime minister. And I think weirdly in the in the first case that even in the episode we're given all of these ways of understanding what the prime minister does with his real body and the body mm. of a real pig as you know having a, a series of asterisks by it right like right. this is a performance this is a piece of art. This is, and even, you know, and they're even telling him like all the sorts of ways, like nobody really thinks that this is you. Nobody really thinks this is what you want, you know? So already we're meant to see that as art, you know, in a kind of very broad sense of art, right? I think that on the part of the viewer today, given deep fake technology, like there's no way that this could happen in which we would not have to see it as art. Right. Like whether it actually yeah. is art or not. And I think either way, it is art, like given the, you know, the requirements of the structure mm-hmm. of the plot, it is art either way. 
Yeah, um, no, I think I'd agree with you. I, I think we're in agreement there. So in that sense, where's the moral weight? Because I feel like what I know about you is that you're not inclined to be so confident about making declarative moral judgments about <laughs> artwork. Right. You know? No, I mean, I think, I think that, and I think this succeeds admirably as a work of art for that reason. What I'm saying, I think is, is not, I think it's, if I'm, if I'm positioning myself, which I think the episode is asking us to do, to position ourselves in the audience, watching the prime minister and kind of cheering it on. Right. I mean, I think that's crucial. It's like, there's this point in which we've gotten stuck up into this game. So we're like, oh my God, he's actually going to do it. Right. So we're, we're participating in the spectacle which means anticipating and in some way rooting for the outcome. But I think what gives it its moral weight, what gives what gives the episode as a work of art its moral weight is when not when we see him having sex with a pig because of the camera cuts at that point. And instead we see everybody else seeing him. And we realize that that is us. And I think that the yeah. only the only moral conclusion to draw from that is I should not put myself in the position of being that spectator. Not the spectator in this art, in this sort of attenuated story, in, in Brooker's story, but that if this is really happening, if a terrorist has really put this demand out there, that I shouldn't watch it. So I think in a weird sense, I'm going to say <laughs> that if Donald Trump, and I can't believe that this is going to sound like a morally, a morally political, <laughs> controversial take, that if I heard that Donald Trump was going to have sex with a pig on national TV, I would A, assume it was fake. But I also would, as a matter of moral principle and aesthetic principle, refuse to watch it. I think that you're a greater man than most Americans. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd succeed. <laughs> but hey, you brought up something that I, I really do want to pivot uh, to, which is this really masterfully filmed and really gut-wrenching last few scenes of the episode when we're watching the British public watching yeah. the the incident the d- indecent act so yeah I'd indecent just like to illegal hear... and disgusting i like how they always say illegal yeah. right they always yeah. ask which i think is crucially but sorry go ahead yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean i i felt like that was just i mean really gut-wrenching to watch because you see reflected back on you know on the screen i mean this is the real dark you know black mirror here mm-hmm. you know you see re- yourself reflected in this contradictory you know, mix of emotions that we're feeling, which is it's funny, it's gross, it's embarrassing, you know, it, it inspires disgust and empathy and fear, just to use Aristotle's terms, right? We can imagine ourselves in that situation, you know, I mean, all of the kind of classic elements of a tragedy mm-hmm. are happening and we're watching ourselves as audience members. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just sort of wondering how you felt about that. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that is the Black Mirror <laughs> effect, right? What I think we should see there is is that way that mix of emotions that you've described, and you also used the word earlier, uncanniness, right? This uncanny realization that we have a capacity which you could argue has been produced by by changes in technology, but which is I think a general structural experience of human a feature of human experience. We have a capacity to force ourselves into situations and witness things, which, to a certain degree, like we ought not witness. And and we I think we realize in that moment that the horror now the horror doesn't mean that we go a lot of directions with horror but this horror in the fact that we do that as as sort of a structural experience of, of being human. You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections with your host Dr. J and today's special guest Ammon Allred. Right now, Black Mirror Reflections is a podcast that's mostly a labor of love and is ad free. If you'd like to keep it that way, feel free to donate to us at patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. That's patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. And now, back to the conclusion of our episode. I, there's, I want to end with two things that are not necessarily wrap-up final thoughts, but two things that I think are worth thinking about, and they're both sort of regrets. One is, f- pay. Like I, I wish in a longer version of this conversation, we would spend a lot of time talking about the prime minister's wife. Mm-hmm. And I think, one of the, I think, to my mind, the most interesting and undecidable moral question is her reaction. What do we make of her reaction to this? And I think that when we ask that question, we're asking a question about somebody who really has a stake in the spectacle that we don't have. And I think that, that is, that's a question that we haven't addressed and that I think is an important one. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage that. The other the other thing that I would that I want to sort of end with when I was watching this episode, and this gets again this question of reality. Um, I was reminded of we've talked a lot about the prime minister. We haven't talked much about the pig, and you know I don't know what 
sexual assault looks like for, I, I don't know what the concept of consent looks like, but I was reminded um, in Godard's Weekend, which is a similar absurdist movie exploring what politics looks like in an age of spectacle. There's a scene in which these like kind of hippies in the woods, I think it's hippie, I can't remember. Anyway, some, a group of people decides in sort of this ritualistic way to kill a pig. And this is filmed in the seventies and you watch this happen and there's a moment where you realize that this does not look like Hollywood having a pig get killed. And the answer, and the reason why is, well, Godard had actually killed a pig on the screen. Now, again, I, I eat meat, I have a problem with it. But I think Pauline Kael's reaction to that is worth thinking about now. I th- she came back and she said, look, Godard, look, Jean-Luc, you might be right about what horrible people humans are. Your politics in this movie might be 100% correct, but the pig is on you. Mm. And one of the things that I would want to think about in the longer term of Black Mirror is whose fault is the pig here? Is it mm-hmm. the viewer's fault? Is it Brooker's fault? Fault is a is a complicated, loaded word, but but I think there's I think that there's a question here about um, the way in which we enlist non moral agents for our moral games that has not been sufficiently thought through. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, that's really provocative, and and I certainly have never kind of thought about the pig so much in this episode. I suppose as my kind of parting thought. I also want to sort of draw attention to the role of the prime minister's wife in this episode. There's this one moment where, you know, they're having this argument about whether or not he's going to do it. And, you know, she says, you know, it doesn't matter if you do it or not. People are already thinking it. They're already imagining. And she says this this thing to him where she says, I know people we love humiliation. We can't not love it. And that this time really stuck with me because I I don't know if I can fully disagree with that claim, you know, I mean, just as a descriptive claim that people love to view other people's humiliation um, or that they have a kind of you know, incapacity to not love watching other people's humiliation. But one of the things that has become really pronounced in American life over the last six years, really since 2014, is this, you know, constant availability of videos of the horrors of our society online. And I myself have watched so many and have every single time thought, why am I watching this? Why do I need to see this? Why do I need to look? And and I think that that is something that National Anthem still, you know, the, the questions raised in National Anthem still have a kind of resonance today as we are literally saturated with videos of police violence, of random acts of racism and, and sexism and transphobia, et cetera. So, so yeah, so Emin, thank you so much. I mean, uh, just for the record, this is actually our, my first recording of this uh, podcast. It may or may not be the actual first recording that's released, but um, I couldn't have done it with a better person. And I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much. I really had so much fun. I hope I can come back and talk about it. Yes. I will, <laughs> I will hold you to that. All, All right. right. Thanks so much. See ya. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts.